Good evening. I'm Larry Hurtado, Emeritus Professor of New Testament in the University of Edinburgh and a member of the Giffords Committee. And it's my pleasure to be able to introduce um, Professor Latour's final lecture in the series Facing Gaia, A New Inquiry into Natural Religion. Uh, can I remind you that um, this lecture will be, is being recorded and will be available shortly on the Gifford website and is also being streamed live to various countries around the world. I now have the great pleasure of handing you over to Professor uh, Latour for his final lecture entitled Inside the Planetary Boundaries of Gaia's Estate. Would you join me in welcoming him? The first time I closed behind me the door that kept the pressurized air inside the 26-meter-high white cube on top of which the artist Thomas Saraceno had inserted three superimposed transparent plastic envelopes where visitors appeared to be moving with great enjoyment, I made the mistake of believing that they could jump or even fly. But I soon realized that visitors were more like insects about to be stuck on flypaper. They could crawl, turn around, roll on one another, but no, they could neither jump nor fly. Saraceno had managed to find a way of rendering fully concrete the experience from shifting from history to geostory by making the decor itself become a recalcitrant and unexpected participant in every movement of those who were literally embedded in it. Not only was it the case that every visitor influenced all the others by changing the air pressure or by forcing the plastic envelope to take a different shape, but when you yourself tried to crawl on all four, it was the sudden and powerful reaction of a thin plastic sheet that took on suffocating presence. In fact, to use the expression I introduced last Tuesday, visitors were learning to lose the feeling of what it is to be a human jumping on solid ground or flying freely above it. They were experiencing what it is to be earthbound, to land that move just as much as them. There is no sense in engaging an audience in the political theology of nature, as I have done for two weeks, if at the end a collective does not emerge that belongs to a clearly delineated territory, a people who are endowed with a specific mode through which all the agency of their cosmos are being distributed and arrayed, who possess a precise touchstone to tell friends from foes, a diplomatic reach wide enough to engage in parleys into potential allies, and who are summoned by an entity, a divinity, a god, a set of god, a god function, for specific ritual that would make such a people conscious of their existence. What I've done in this lecture series is thus a sort of thought experiment in demogenesis, an attempt at creating artificially a people out of those who suffer under the universal bondage of naturalism. 
of people able to liberate themselves from a cult of nature, not to reach the promised land of milk and honey, but more prosaically to settle on the earth that they had fled because they had mistaken it from some holy imaginary pagan divinity. In this last lecture, I want to bring together the various thread I have assembled and, if possible, to spark life into them. I have to confess that I feel a bit like Mary Shelley's character, trying to enliven a character made from a range of disjointed parts, snatched from morgues and cemeteries. But contrary to Victor Frankenstein, I know that failure is a necessary ingredient of such an attempt, and that the inventor should not flee in horror and abandon his creature as Victor did, simply because it starts so monstrously. So far, everything happened as if it was impossible to enjoy the simultaneous presence of a people, a soil or an earth, and a science. We find people without science nor soil, science without soil nor people, people with soil but no science. How to get the three together? Such is the puzzle that we have to solve. First, the soil. As we have seen earlier, everything that was part of the background has now morphed into the foreground. There is no environment anymore, and thus no longer a need for environmentalists. We are post-natural for good. With the end of political epistemology of the past that ensured the presence of an undisputable outside of arbiter, namely nature known by science, we are left without land and thus without a body politic. I remember that many years ago when I began my research, sociologists and historians were scandalized because actor network theory claimed to follow association between humans and non-humans in a continuous way. How timid my anthropomorphism was at the time of the Anthropocene. Remember that when there was a modernizing frontier that was supposed to move forward by separating science from politics, the art domain of fact from the disputable domain of value? How difficult it is today to recognize an arrow of time that would distinguish for good what is from what ought to be when it is what is that is requesting its due. If you can still dispute whether we have never been modern or not, who now dispute that we will never be able to modernize the Earth for lack of a five planets, this is a calculation in global hectares, that would be needed to push our endless frontier to the same level of development that North America. Things have changed so fast that it's hard to keep track. Remember when Hans Jonas had to appeal to the welfare of future generations to bring their virtual ancestors into virtual motion? Now it is our generation, or that of our children, whose fate is staring us in the, fa in the face. Remember how people laughed derisively when Michel Serre offered to enter into a natural contract on an equal footing with nature, as if humans could entangle her in the ropes of law? Now, we would be happy to still have such a tame partner in front of us when it has become the angry beast that we are poking with a stick, the Bengali tiger in the lifeboat of a story of pie. Remember when people believed that at least there existed Indian deep in the Amazon forest or Aborigines 
in the Central Australian desert, or Highlanders in the mountains of New Guinea who knew how to live peacefully in touch or even in harmony with nature. Now every ethnographer has learned that nature is a narrow historical and contingent concept that no traditional people has ever shared, except when they have to seduce NGOs and pop stars into defending their cause against a new dam or a new mine. Remember how many intellectuals used to shake in excitement at the term deterritorialization, as if nomadic existence was the new ideal of two comfortably rooted city dwellers. Now, the same people look desperately for land, for a terra firma, where they may re-territorialize again without being accused of being reactionary. Remember how centuries of Christian cult, image, metaphor, and prayer sent believers away to heaven, eyes turned upward, wishing to upload themselves away finally from this base mortal earth below. Now they realize so terribly late that they had misread the gospel, and that instead of what good would it be to possess the word if you forfeit your soul, they should have heeded this other sterner injunction. What use it is to save your soul if you forfeit the earth. What has happened is that there has been a confusion between, on the one hand, nature, and on the other, this local, historical, sublunar oikos of Gaia. In earlier time, when we were mentioning the presence of a natural phenomenon, as soon as you had passed the mythical threshold of society, culture, or objectivity, it was as if everything else, from the bowels of your body to the Big Bang, from the soil beneath your feet all the way to the infinite expanses of the galaxy, was made out of the same stuff, belonged to the same domain, and obeyed the same intangible laws. Suddenly, we find ourselves thrown into two, a completely different space. Gaia is not nature. Gaia is the localized, historical, and secular avatar of nature. Or rather, nature appears retrospectively as the epistemological, politicized, religious, fabulous extension of Gaia. Hence the surprising result, which inverse what the modernizers have been totally lost. Transcendence has been misplaced. If nature could have provided us the hope unifying and pacifying politics, or at least providing a stable background for the vagaries of human history, it's not the case with Gaia. Gaia makes no promise of peace and provides no stable decor. So much of our soil, what about the people? As we saw two years ago, it seems that humans are pretty bad candidates to play the role of the Anthropos of the Anthropocene. Just when we need politics to replace the older covenant of political epistemology, we don't even know how to name the citizen able to compose such a limited and expanded body. Limited because it can no longer count on infinite nature, expanded because it has to absorb the presence of Gaia. However, those human characters are, are understood as neo-Darwinian bodies, feud with Homo economicus, and there is no example of such calculating robots ever being able to take their limited abode into account. They are irrational for good. Or they are taken as subjects whose entire occupation consists in trying to escape from what they take to be the cold and deanimated 
domination of objectivity. Would a better candidate be the resilient and biophiliac species advocated by E.O. Wilson? But the poor, the downtrodden, the exploited cannot be made part of the same species as their exploiters. Such a Wilsonian peace proposal will bring the apolitical and historical element of nature through the back door. Unfortunately, it won't do either. Either agent of Joe's story had to be the revolutionary humanity of a Marxist utopia. Since, as Chakrabarty dryly remarks, had the proletariat succeeded in destroying capitalism for good, pollution would have been even greater than today, thanks to the fact that vast masses have remained in abject poverty. Would it be possible to accept the candidacy of those people who claim to be assembled, for instance, by Pachamama, the earth goddess? Maybe, but only if we could be sure that what passes for respect for the earth is not due to their small number and to the relative weakness of their technology. None of those so-called traditional people, the wisdom of which we, other, we often admire, is being prepared to scale up, scale up their ways of life to the size of a giant metropolis in which we are now corralled more than half of a human race. Obviously, at such a juncture, what would be needed is a multiplicity of engagement and a proliferation of manners to behave as human on Earth. Bad luck, that's just the time when under the name of globalization, the same definition of what it is to be human, equipped with exactly the same set of calculative skills, the same narrow limit defining what it is to be an individual, the same standardized ways of life, the same appetite for consumption, the same limited range of communication and information, the same format for feeling responsible, the same laws of ownership, in brief, the same version of the economy are supposed to reign everywhere on Earth. To explore the numbers of the Earth, there is no instrument other than the tiny range of patterns provided by management and government. Just at the time when first nature had begun to loosen its grip, the second nature of the economy imposed its iron law more tightly than ever. Funnily enough, inertia has turned aside. As long as modernism had elsewhere, humans were happy to live divided, bifurcated into the realm of a necessity on the one hand, that is concatenation of causes and consequences, and on the other, the realm of freedom, that is the creation of law, morality, liberty, and art. The stringent necessity of nature against the freedom of proliferating culture. The geohistorical event that I'm trying on those lectures to underline has turned this divide upside down. Acceleration, revolution, quick pace, catastrophes, upheaval, tipping point, that become part of the common vocabulary we use to describe what happens to the former realm of nature. In fact, subluna Gaia. And to describe the former realm of human history, of law, mentality, and politics, what is the vocabulary we use? Indifference, hysteresis, rigidity, denial, irreversibility, lock-in, and yet even ineluctable necessity. The power of invention and surprise has shifted from humans to non-human, 
as in very Frederick Jameson famous quip, that nowadays it seems easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. What is sure is that glaciers appear to slide quicker, ice to melt faster, species to disappear at a greater speed than the slow, gigantic, majestic, inertial pace of politics, consciousness, and sensibility. Shelley today would be at pains to chant the everlasting universe of things since we have stopped believing that waterfall will leap forever and that a vast river over its rocks will ceaselessly burst and raves. If there is still enough of a chiasm to feed the mixture of gloom and splendor that goes into the feeling of the sublime, it's not because we witness poor transitory humans agitating themselves on the stage of an everlasting nature, but because we are asked to witness obstinately dumb humans sitting impassibly frozen while the whole former decor of their older plot is passing away at a frightening speed. Soil, people, everything has mutated. What about the science? Here too the situation is novel. On the one hand, nothing about Gaia, reaction, variety, consistence, and composition can be sized up without chains of monitoring instruments, large collection, long-term expedition, well-situated observation station, powerful model, etc. Wherever the instrument go, our sensibility increases. Wherever the instruments are interrupted, our sensibility dims and then disappears. Science is the new aesthetic able to render us sensible to where we are standing. So in a sense, never in human history was a situation so totally defined by the span, quality, and data flows of science. And yet what is so troubling is that the standing and status of the science bear almost no relation for the, to the modernist ideals of the science capital S on the right here, on the left, sorry, of the recent past. Far from marking the triumph of particle physics and of cosmology, able to deduce every other agency from first principles, our sciences, lower cases, resemble more the good old disciplines of natural history, all sorts of humble and despised trade, from meteorology to agriculture, from ethnography to nomenclature, from stratigraphy to epitology, all having a say to follow this or that minuscule and unexpected twist in the narrative complexity of Gaia. All forces to get out from behind the laboratory walls and into the vast and conflicting earth. All forced to share the result in full public view. Big data, vast administrative machinery, computer model, multiple local controversy, wonder camera, what a confusion. And of course, those many interlocking and divided disciplines do not command the same respect and do not appeal to the same authority as the past. Remember when science study was accused of unduly politicizing science? Now controversies over matters of concern cannot be solved like dispute over matters of fact by a mere extension of scientific method and a resumption of a fight against irrationality. The accusation of being irrational cuts no ice anymore. 
because scientific disciplines have become coextensive with all the forms of life. How could scientists defend their inside fortress of their science against the invasion of the masses from the outside when they treat at scale one in real time the very outside inside which all of those masses reside? People no longer fight for or against science. They decide for themselves where, with whom, and with which agency they wish to live, which oikos they are ready to defend against which other oikos. No matter if the old word for household ends up with nomos, as in economics, or logos, as in ecology, it is no longer able to unify or to pacify. How disappoint, disappointing such a post-epistemological situation must be for those who dream to be the people of nature, those who claim to belong to OWAB, remember the first lecture, those who prided themselves for not being a people, for having no cosmos, no politics, and no God, mixing in one single continuous res extensa the supralunar and the sublunar condition, making the local ring of entangled feedbacks that we have called Gaia continuous with nature without realizing the extent of the gap, the vast non-sequitur between the two. So never has science become so vital for daily life, and yet such is one of the reasons for the disarray in which I think we all find ourselves. We have to turn to the scientists for revelation and for decision just at the time when those same scientists are most unable to play the role of kings on the throne is a tragic figure, more frightened and more divided than those we have to guide. To reattach people, a soil and a science, we have to raise again the question of shapes and limits and ask the earthlings by the border of which territory they are ready to be bound by which line they accept to be drawn, by which ties they wish to be entangled. Fortunately, the same scientists who devised the notion of Anthropocene have also proposed that of planetary boundary, inside which it would be possible, according to them, to draw a safe operating space for humanity. Human of a modernist breed have ignored the question by defining themselves as those who are always escaping from the bonds of the past, always attempting to pass beyond the impassable columns of Hercules. Plus ultra has always been their proud motto. By contrast, earthbound have to explore the question of their limits. Not because they are forbidden by some outside power to do so, but because their maxim is plus intra. They cannot rely on any older version of what used to be a soil, a land, a plot, or as we say in French, a terroir. Not because they fear being reactionary and moving backward. If you remember the dancer last Tuesday, moving backward is what they have stopped doing when they stopped believing they were modern but because there is no way to squeeze their ways of life, their techniques, their value, their vast number, their city, inside the narrow confine of what it meant to belong to land. Paradoxically, in order to determine their limit, 
earthbound should break away from the limit of what we used to think of as space. The narrow countryside they were so eager to leave, as well the utopia of indefinite space that they were so eager to reach. <coughs> Geostory requires a change in the very definition of having, holding, or occupying a space of what it is to be appropriated by a land. Needless to say that those limits cannot be dictated from the outside, simply because they have been objectively determined by the laws of nature and transported as a piece of pure information to everybody through generalized education. Bounded by such limits, those people would be once again enslaved to nature, maybe human, but in fact deeply inhuman, maybe without God, but in fact prisoners of a cult of nature, more pagan than the pagans whose idols they are so proud of having smashed. No, those limits have to be felt. They have to be generated. They have to be discovered. They have to be decided from the inside of the people themselves. As we know, from without decision, there is no body politics, no liberty, no autonomy. In those lectures, we have learned to recognize several of those lines that are able to give a shape to the oikos, to the house, to the abode, inside which earthbound may decide to live. Let's trace once again the dividing lines of our geostory and of our geopolitics and see whether or not once superimposed, they succeed in attaching at least some people inside the planetary boundary they have decided. The first of these lines of territory tracing that we have recognized under the old name of nomos, and that defined the geopolitics of the Earth. Geography, that is the writing, inscription, mapping, surveying, and inventory of the land, is of course the oldest and best-known case of this geotracing activity. So is geology. No one can belong to a soil without this activity of space tracking, plot surveying, and line tracing. All those Greek words, nomos, graphos, logos, of the same ge, geos, or Gaia. But earthbound are not land surveyor, cartographer of geologists looking from above at the flat surface of their well-delineated map. Their discipline is no longer geometry and optics, but rather biology and natural history. The initiative of naming and surveying no longer comes from them to the land that they have appropriated by a sovereign gestures of domination. As we have recognized in the third lecture, the lines that they have learned to trace, thanks to their instrument, have the shape of entangled and retroactive loops. Those loops don't start with them toward the map, but from the landscape back to them, and more often than not, they come back with a vengeance. Each of these loops register the unexpected reaction of some outside agency to human action. Because of its responsiveness, what is a territory has been entirely subverted it is no longer the old pastoral landscape of the well-delineated fields out of which crops are slowly and faithfully coming to fruition, et in arcada ego. 
A territory is everything that you need to survive and that may suddenly fail you. Such a plot is not a well-delineated, but it's made of highly surprising network of unexpected connection, jumping up at you, be they fish, fall, air, soil, carbon, protein, or rare earths. There is nothing pastoral in looking at it. Far from being the land appropriation, the land name celebrated by Schmidt, it's rather the violent reappropriation of all human titles by the land itself, as if territory and terror shared a similar route. Such is the Mabius strip in which we are now entangled. Such is the experiment in which unwittingly the anthropos of the Anthropocene has been placed. The earthbound learn their limit by feeling the violent reaction of what they do to modify their ways of life more and more desperately. But this time, experiments are not safely confined inside the laboratories. The earth is the laboratory inside which experimenters are imprisoned. Whereas, as we have seen earlier, the atlas of a scientific revolution could hold the globe in its hand, Scientists of the Guyan counter-revolution, I'm sorry to say, look more like ticks on the mane of a roaring beast. This is why geostory does not have the same tonality as either history or geography. Each limit, each loop has to be collectively narrated, collectively lamented, collectively replayed and ritualized by the public, who is not simply listening to the tentative result of a science later to be scaled up and applied, but thrown in real time inside the unintended consequence of a full-scale experiment which started with application and was only later caught up by hastily drawn loop of reflexivity. Retroaction there is indeed, but after the fact and maybe too late. The thread of tragedy does not have to be spun only by the Olympian gods of old. Human might be perfectly able to spin it with their own hands. They just have to find themselves entangled in events that have preceded them by a few centuries back and to which they have no control any longer. This is why we need to trace and ceaselessly retrace again the line made up by all those loops. As if the old distinction between science, public, art and civic space was quickly vanishing all those obsolete distinctions are much less important than this strong injunction. Keep the loop traceable and publicly visible, or else we will be blind and helpless with no soil on which to settle stranger to our own land. That's what the Anthropocene is about, a really Oedipal tale. But contrary to Oedipus, we should resist the temptation to blind ourselves at the revelation we should face it head on and look at what is coming. The second line that can be tentatively traced is the direct consequence of the first. Whatever is reacting to our action loop after loop begins to take a consistency, a solidity, a coherence that for sure does not have the technical predictability of a cybernetic system but which nonetheless weigh on us as a force to be taken into account. This is what happens when you keep adding the response of the ice sheet 
to the response of the acidity of the ocean, to the response of thermoaline circulation, to the response of biodiversity, and so on and so forth. Such an accumulation of responses requires a responsive agency to which you yourself have to become, in turn, responsible. Here again, the performances end up generating a competence. Behind those cumulative responses, it's hard not to imagine that there exists a power that does listen and answer. To grant it a personhood is not simply that it may speak and think, or that it exists as one single substance, no more than you would do with a state, but that in the end it has to be recognized as a politically assembled sort of entity. What counts is that such a power has the ability to steer our action and thus to provide it with limit, loops, and constraint, which is, as you know, the etymology of the word cybernetic. In that sense, Gaia is indeed a cybernetic sort of being, even though, as I've shown in commenting on Lovelock, it's not a technical system. It's cybernetic in an old and frightening sense of the word. Such a power exerts a sort of sovereignty. Since it plays the role of a collective person, that is, to act as a collected body, it should be given a collective name. We do it for France or for Scotland, and there is no reason to abstain from doing it for Gaia, since it's now clearly understood that it addressed not as nature, but as a new political entity. To live in the epoch of the Anthropocene is to admit a strange and uneasy shift in power to the profit of Gaia, taken as the secular aggregates of all the agency recognized as acting back through loops of retroaction. Of course, Gaia does not possess, does not possess yet, the legal quality of a res publica, of a state, of a great artificial Levite and of Hobbes' invention. And yet it's clear that the earthbound are tied to Gaia in a very different way than nature used to tie humans to her. On one hand, Gaia is much less personified than nature, but on the other, it does not claim to be outside or indisputable and does not pretend to be indifferent to politics. Whereas nature could lord over human as a religious power to which a paradoxical cult had to be rendered, Gaia commands, order, binds, as a secular, not as a religious power. When we begin to gather together as earthbound, we realize that we are summoned by a power that is fully political one, since it possesses what is called in Anglo-American law radical title to the whole land. That is a legal claim that has precedence over all the other property rights. Faced with such a radical title, the earthbound understand that contrary to what humans keep dreaming, they will never play the role of Atlas, not that of gardener of the earth, but they will never be able to fulfill the function of master engineer of spaceship earth, not even that of a faithful and modest steward of a blue planet. It's as simple as that. They are not alone in common. Someone else has preceded them, even though they have learned it a bit 
late. It's called power sharing. The third line able to trace the shape of the land is the oldest one, that of politics. What distinguishes friend from foes through a shibboleth and which has to decide on enmity in the absence of any outside arbiter? What is part and what is not part of a body politic is the outcome of a decision. And this decision has to be renewed again and again, thus tracing, tracing around the people a constantly circular movement. That's why I call it the political circuit. That might grow or shrink depending on the fate of battles and the generosity of the winners. This is where geopolitics takes a new meaning. Masters of agency are given a voice and a say in what is at stake, each trying to transform the loop that I've just stressed into the political circle that grant them autonomy. They obey their own rules. But here, on Sublunar Gaia, this proud and venerable expression is applied to the former realm of necessity as well as to the former realm of liberty. If it was so difficult to imagine in which parliaments of nature the laws of nature could be voted, it's not so difficult to detect the form where the laws of Gaia are voted, registered, recognized, invoked, discovered, and enforced. Is this an extension of politic? Indeed it is. How strange to have thought that only humans are political animals. What about animals? What about all sorts of animated agency? None of them should be de-animated to the point of having no voice at all. Nor should they be over-animated to the point of speaking in the comic repertoire of anthropomorphic citizen. But all agency that define a territory, that is, what is necessary for the subsistence and durable existence of a given agent, are political agency. Once they are accepted, of course, as part and parcel of the body politic information. If it's always wise to ponder the question, how would have I behave had I found myself among the criminal of the past century, it's even more crucial not to find ourselves among the criminals when in this century we will face the battle for the ordering, appropriation, and distribution of spaces and climate. Carl Schmitt credits the Jus Publicum Europeanum for having limited for two centuries the war that had burst out of all boundaries in the 20th century. Would it be possible to invent a successor to this Jus Publicum in order to limit the coming wars of the world? Would it be possible to place this new law under the same oldest invocation, what Roman legists call sanctissima terus? Such a move would result in a completely new mode of action for the former laws of nature, something that could be called jus publicum teluris, still, of course, to be invented, in order to limit the extent of what Schmidt, in his queer, toxic, and profound language, I'd call the wars for the ordering of space, an expression which once purged from its 20th century allusion is a good definition of ecology. Fourth and last, the fourth, times of life, sorry, the fourth type of lines and limits is the one provided by accepting to live at the end of time, or rather, as we have seen in the last lecture, at the time of the end. 
Although this form of historicity can be displayed with all the flashy colors and special effects of the apocalypse, invoked by long line of prophets, told in the mysterious and frightening prose dictated by St. John in Patmos, it bears no more than a superficial relation with the apocalyptic stories coming from political ecology and from Hollywood movies. Before being puffed up into grandiose big budget cosmic scenes, the radical rupture of eschatology should first be recognized in a lighter, humble, and more parsimonious tone. It is that tone that we recognize in the second lecture when I contrasted it with the question of belief, especially of belief in God, a belief that attempted to mimic an access to the far away without the vehicle to do so, what I'd call religious two, as to stress this difference with religion one. Instead of providing information about distant state of affairs, this tone transform, convert, and yes, resuscitate those who are thus addressed by this message, this good message. Those who hear it become close with one another, thy neighbor, proximum tuum, without gaining the slightest piece of news on what happened to anything far away. The end of time is not the final globe that encircle all the other globes, the final meaning to all it all. Rather, it's a new difference, a new line traced inside all the other lines, crossing them everywhere and giving another meaning to every event that is an end, a goal, a final and radical presence, an achievement. Not another world, but this same world grasped in a radically new way. Many of those appeals to conversion. The kingdom of the God is near. Come inhabit the house of the Father. The world has become flesh and so on. In a bewildering flourish of expression that gain their meaning only if they are able to convert on the spot, in real time, one after the other, those who hear them, or that lose any meaning if they fail to convert. A way of talking which is just as exacting, just as attuned to the difference between truth and falsity than that of the sciences, but that direct attention in the opposite direction, to the close at hand, not to the distance. This was the reason why, by the way, I claim in the lecture two, the resemblance between what I call religion two and nature two. Tragically, this twist in the flow of time, this event inside the event, this scattered lodge inside the movement of history has been transmogrified into an escape from time, a jump to eternity. As if a calamity of a natural was not enough, generation of priests, pastors, preachers, and theologians have belabored the Holy Scriptures to prop up on top of nature another domain of the supernatural. As if the non-existence of nature could serve as a solid foundation for the non-existence of the supernatural. The whole of religion has been progressively displaced to an attempt to save the disembodied souls of humans from a sinful attachment to the earth. Look above. Even more tragically, a misunderstanding ensued about what was called paganism. Pagans, even though they had totally ignored the very notion of nature, were taken as those who were too close to nature to hear the call of a transcendent God. Even though the transcendent of this God of incarnation had to be inserted into the very immanence of passing time, 
At the epoch of the Anthropocene, there are still Christians who keep hesitating to embrace ecological causes for fear of falling into paganism and pantheism. It is in large part the belief that a combat against paganism has to be mercifully pursued that has led Christianity astray, forcing the faithful to shun the path of the sciences just when those were showing the way on this earth much more clearly than the column of smoke leading the Hebrews through the desert. To be sure, the belief in the creation as an alternative to nature is a powerful way to make certain that the converting power of incarnation is not limited to the inner fold of the psyche and that it may extend finally to the whole cosmos, but only on the condition that creation is not another name for nature, distinguished from it only, as we saw in the second lecture, from the presence of other animated agencies and packaged by design. The Holy Spirit may renew the face of the earth, but he is powerless when confronted with faceless nature. It's because Gaia is such a secular figure that it may allow the dynamic of incarnation to resume its movement in a space freed from the limits of nature. If we really, as St. Paul said, know that the whole creation groans and travails in the pain of childbirth until now, it means that it's not yet achieved. And thus, it has to be composed, step by step, soul by soul, agency by agency. How strange it is that theologians fighting against paganism don't realize that they are the ones who have built of a century a real cult of nature that is a search for an outside, immutable, universal, undisputable entity in contrast with the mutable, local, entangled, and disputable narrative which the rest of us, earthbound, inhabit. We might have forgotten that another rendition of the word ecology, to use Jürgen Moltmann's invented etymology, could be oikos logos, that is the house of the logos, this house of the father of which the Gospel of St. John writes that it has many mentions. I hope you have understood that to occupy the earth no, to be occupied and preoccupied by the earth, we need to inhabit all those mansions at once. You see that there exist at least four ways, each of them giving sense to the maxim plus intra, to make those planetary boundaries not what is imposed from the outside by nature, but something inside which the earthbound themselves decide to remain circumscribed. I have now completed the movement that I wanted to share with you. This strange trajectory that has forced us to take up against this old task of doing the political theology of a non-existing people, a people that I have invented by imagining that its member could be freed from all other attachment, lands, and missions. Out of Egypt, all over again. I'm well aware, aware that political theology is not a quiet and cheery field. It's too dark 
to dangerous. And also, it's written by abominably reactionary people. It's just that by proposing the golden spike of the Anthropocene, by throwing the Earth and its inhabitants into the same historicity, naturalists have pushed the whole of our thought into a tailspin. Our entire, entire operating system has to be rewritten. What I've done is to bring together science, politics, religion, after having extracted each of them from its confusion with nature. Strangely enough, nature is much too restricted a globe for the geostory that those free field wish to tell. Actually, the first thing I did on arriving in Edinburgh was to pay a visit to the Outlook Tower, with which I started this meditation Monday before last. I was deeply disappointed that Patrick Geddes could pretend to accommodate the whole known cosmos inside those few shabby rooms seem as bizarre as those medieval tea maps with Jerusalem at the center that preceded the shape of the many new lands brought back by navigators. How could you squeeze the universe in this small space? In my disappointment, I saw vivid confirmation of the argument that because she has the shape of a globe, nature, in spite of her immensity, is too small to hold the discovery of the Earth, too completed already, too circular, too narrow-minded to absorb the stupefying historicity of a planet. This is why geography is to be rewritten. In that sense, we find ourselves exactly in an age similar to that of Columbus, when his voyage encountered an all-new continent that the circular view of the Mediterranean people could not have anticipated. To absorb a new subversion in the shape of the Earth, we are exactly as ill-prepared as medieval Europe was. Except that this time, it's not the extension and expansion of a new piece of land that is revealed by the agency and intensity of the old earth. It's not a revelation about the special, but about the historical extension of the planet. Humans are not stupefied to learn that there is an entire new world at their disposal, but that they have to entirely relearn the way in which they inhabit their same old world. This is why in so many ways we feel transported back into the climate of the 16th century, another age of discovery. And of course, I'm sure that historians will say that humanity has been there many times, and that the tendency to exaggerate the novelty of a period is as old as the apocalypse itself. But what I did in those lectures was to take seriously the possibility that the Anthropocene was indeed a radically new situation. It is in Gaia, after all, that we might discover the five planets, if you remember five planets calculated with the global hectares method, which are necessary for our progress and development, that is inside the planetary boundaries themselves folded in their multiple worlds, and because we will learn to maintain our activity in that same safe operating space.
This is where the transcendence of religion lies, deep in the recess of human incarnation. That is where the sciences and technology reside, deep within the many entangled narratives of all the events, of all the agency, in all the twists and folds of its natural history. This is where the resources of politics lie, deep within the indignation and the revolt of those who scream at seeing their soil disappear from under their feet. What the Maxim Plus Intra designate is a path for progress and for invention, a path that links the natural history of the planet with the whole history of the incarnation and with the revolt of those who are going to learn never to accept remaining quiet simply because they have to obey the laws of nature. It is still the old and proud injunction, forward, forward. Not toward a new land, but toward a land whose face is to be renewed. If Columbus took very earnestly his surname of Christopher, carrying Jesus across the Atlantic, we can no longer believe that we have the shoulders strong enough to carry such a weight. Rather, we should agree to weigh much less heavily on the back of what is taking us through the fold of time, namely Gaia. For me, not to have been instantly crushed by the burden of a topic and the prestige of a long line of my predecessors in this lecture series is all I could wish for. Thank you very much. there is no uh, time for question or discussion after the final lecture. But Professor Latour has insisted uh, that we allow some time, and we're happy to oblige. Uh, and so if your stamina can hold up for this uh, final time, uh, we will have uh, about uh, uh, 10 or 15 minutes, perhaps, of question and discussion. So the floor is now open. And uh, Lynn, if you are there with the roving mic. So please, if you wish to have a a question or comment, raise your hand, and Lynn will pass it to you. But before we do that, can I give you just, um, those of you who have to get away, about two minutes to make your move, and then we will have the questions. What I think is a, a simple question for you, and thank you for your, your six days of talk. This has been amazing. Um, I think it was Tuesday. You said that the Anthropocene will put an end to anthropomorphism. Can you just uh, in, talk a little bit more about that? Well, because it's, I mean, at, on the face of it, it's an extension of the weight of a human, which is another, I mean, obviously this is what it is, except, of course, the anthropos, which is supposed to be confronted with nature in the old definition, I say it's not nature, it's Gaia, uh, doesn't have a political body. So it actually, the morph in anthropomorphism the morphism, it's morphed into a very, very different set of questions which are open for political theory and 
in my view, political theology as well, which is how many ways there are to be confronted with the Anthropocene. I mean, obviously, it's not neither you or me. It's not nation-state, even though nation-state have a responsibility. It's uh, activists, but it's a different things because it's us attached to our territories, which is a very odd definition of what it is to be a human. An earthbound is some, some, someone relatively different from a human in many definitions of human as extra extracting oneself from the necessity of nature. For example, that figure of what it is to be human is completely uh, obsolete with the Anthropocene. So in that sense, it's not just the face of human which would be recognizable, a sort of superman facing nature. It, but it's also redistribute as much what nature was used to be. So the Anthropocene works on the two sets, the human and also nature. Sure, Nick, Nick has no question. This is very so. Ah, ah. I miss you, Nick, on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again. Um, I was trying to think of which of the many gifts from classical Christian theology might be most appropriate to present in this very dark vision which you've presented. And I wondered whether one of them, I wonder what you thought about it, might be the curious relation of sudden change and incremental development or incremental change that is present in the very strange holding together in classical theology between baptism, which is done once and which changes everything suddenly, a whole reorientation towards a different good, but also a turning away from a very specifically named evil. So it has that kind of dual function, which is then followed by a lifetime of incremental change and transformation. Um, so you, don't, you, don't, you don't need to be baptized every week. Um, but there does need to be a kind of, of movement towards a different future. And it seemed that one of the things that you were grappling with is a simultaneous need for a sudden shift of vision, uh, an alternative form of, of, of the generation of a collective, but also then this constant incremental need for transformation that follows it. But what follows rather strangely from your presentation is that the tempo or the pace of this incremental change, a lifetime is no longer enough. Um, it's, it's not possible to baptize an infant and then give them many years of incremental change towards this new future. We have to baptize everybody as fast as possible and then the pace of that incremental change needs to be stepped up in a way hitherto never dreamed of. Thank you. Composition is, of course, one of the ways to handle the, one of his defin many different limits. One of them is the conversion, obviously, the fourth of his limit, living in the end of time. It's connected to this argument about hope, which Clive Hamilton has developed, even though it's not clearly a theological argument. And hope is the wrong way to try to handle this question. You have to lose it before you can. So that's a sort of sudden um, way. And then there is a composition. One way of phrasing that, which is, of course, linked to the argument in political theology, is this uh, argument of a catacomb. I mean, that's where the suspension, so the thing is done. We are done for, but then it's suspended, which is another way of playing with, with this. Now, the problem of all these metaphors of rhythm, 
conversion movement is there extraordinary features that it's inverted, that it's about former object of nature, that speed is now speed, quick transformation, positive feedback and so on, is now attributed to former natures. And the humans are now portrayed as the one who are unable of conversion, so to speak, which is a very odd for all sort of metaphors of the history of human on Earth, completely bizarre. I think we have exhausted the... One here, comes. Why was it dark, by the way? <laughs> Tuesday was dark, but today was supposed to be... We have lost hope. Now, espérance comes. I mean, English, I realize, is a bad language because you don't have a difference between hope, espoir, and espérance? Yes. How would you say that in English? What's the difference between hope and espérance? Ah, there's two, two uses of the word hope. I mean, in, in, in popular usage, we say, I hope it doesn't rain today, but it means I have no idea whether it will or not or whatever. Mm -hmm. But the biblical notion of hope, elpida, is uh, something that is guaranteed, it's just not here yet. Okay. So you strive in the confidence that it's out there, it's just not here yet. I realize that in theology, the French have uh, advantages. That's true. Yes, we have hope, <laughs> espoir, espérance, and we have also voisin et prochain. Right. And you are stuck to neighbor, which is not so good. <laughs> <laughs> there, was, there was a comment here. Uh, yeah, it's, it's the same question that uh, I'd asked you after the first lecture, which was, I think in some way to what extent this, this project is Western-centric and to what extent it can be proposed to people that might not have this idea of science, either of the two meanings of science and either of the two meanings of, uh, of religion. And given the scope of the project, it's probably something that makes sense to say something about maybe. No, you're, I'm sorry I didn't, I wanted to, when the first idea of the lectures came, I was, wanted to do a much more uh, thorough review of the anthropology literature. And I got stuck into uh, the natural uh, political theology, which, which you write, I mean, is, is a very highly circumscribed set of, of, of ways of arguing about people and uh, cosmos and so on. But, so there would be, if I had had the six other lectures, of the old Gifford uh, format, uh, I would have developed much more the other part, which is, of course, the Descola, uh, Vivero de Castro, the whole work uh, uh, in gold, uh, which are many other ways of occupying this space and even talking about what is a people and an entity and a cosmos than I did. So I'm sorry to say that I didn't make much progress between the first question that you raised after the first lectures and this one, and I'm still. Uh, uh, guilty of the same uh, limits. It seemed to me that the extraction of a notion of nature from science religion, I mean Christian religion, and politics was already uh, quite a large uh, call. But you're perfectly right. Michael has a question. Michael has a question. I'd like to, to ask your view on, on simply put, um, the paradigm of science is basically one of control. Uh, I'm a scientist myself, so I'm very familiar with the mechanistic language that we use in science. And 
And if anything, you know, science, mechanistic language tends to, to take apart phenomena. And if anything, I would say it is aimed at desensitization. And so a few of lectures ago, when you were talking about the importance and the need of sensitization and resensitization and creating loops of sensitization to Gaia, my question is whether you, you don't think that there might be, in fact, a, you know, a large inner logical tension between the way Western science works and what you're aiming for? Well, the way Western science works, according to us, the science studies people, is nature too. Which means your work, which is called mechanization, is actually an, the best way to animate the agencies which are part of former nature. So paradoxically, my view, I mean, this is a diplomatic encounter which always has to be done with great care, but uh, there is, of course, a de-animated style of talking about science, which is often done, but in, for fight, fighting reasons most of the time. But the, as I showed in the first two lectures, the, the, the agencies, the notion of agencies and the multiplicity of agencies is precisely what we learn from science. And actually, every single little twist and tools in, in Gaia, I mean, in natural history, it's come from scientists. I mean, if you read Margulis, if you read any, uh, I mean, Lovelock, of course, but all the Earth scientists, I mean, Stefan and all these guys, there's nothing especially mechanistic, even though when, even when they describe mechanic, the mechanics of Gaia. So in mechanistic, there is a, a sort of misunderstanding. There's, one, there's a way of writing which deanimate the series of causes and consequences, but that's a purely ideological vision of what the science... And then there is a practice. And the practice of science is to be passionate about extremely active agency, which is a great paradox. That's why I made the two columns. And there's no relation between science one and science two. So you said yourself, I speak in a mechanistic tone, but I'm sure if I had the pleasure of reading your paper, I would show you, I mean, proliferation of agencies in all places. Plus the nice fact that you don't necessarily immediately convince your colleagues. So to that is added the nice controversies about it. My own field is, is that of animal sentience and welfare. And my experience is that you know, a lot of scientists there are, are very keen to, to take that apart into, and, and reassemble it as you, you made you know, in, in the brain in terms of neuroscience. Whereas I, you know, they, they, don't, they forget to honor the whole animal and the agency of the whole animal who owns actually all that, who's the owner of that sentience. And I find in my own work that having to, to fight for that wholeness of the animal within science is very, very difficult. Yes, no, of course it is very difficult because they, they are divided. It's exactly as in theology, they are divided. This is why these two columns, which might have seen a bit austere at the beginning of the talk, were so important for me because they are really divided. And we, 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 we use the word nature for two completely different views, and we use the word religion for two absolutely completely different views. My, my idea is to make the connection between the two. <laughs> it's a risky move, of course, but it's Michael over here. Thank you again for a very stimulating lecture, and particularly the emphasis on Gaia as real estate or radical estate. And this uh, really Schmidt-derived idea then that 
the boundaries of our new Anthropocenic citizenship are the boundaries of the Earth, the boundaries of the whole planet. But what I would like to press you on a little more is, is the political implications of this. You spoke of the moments and the lines of decision, but certainly some in the audience and many in the climate activist movement, many climate scientists, most politicians would say, oh yes, but we know what you're talking about. It's called the United Nations. We set up the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change with a recognition that some are suffering, some have more responsibility than others, and I suppose I really just would like you to reflect a little bit on that process, even if you simply to say, well, it's, it's founded on a, a series of, of conceptual errors or, or whatever. But it does seem to me that at least we, we, we need to, to at least acknowledge it and say, well, yeah, it's not working, but for these reasons, what would a more effective council look like than the UNFCC? Perhaps this is another way to ask the question. Well, of course, I, I cannot do what I did so far, which is to say it will be in the next lecture because there's no next lecture. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I'm going to say, yes, you're right. It would be extremely important. Uh, and I, we have actually done several of these experiments by redoing the Copenhagen mess-up of 2009, trying to find other boundary, playing the scientists in different positions. So there's a whole work of, let's say, practical parliamentary representativity politics to be uh, done. What I added, I think, in, in to this reflection, uh, which are very interesting, and I contributed with some of my uh, colleagues, is uh, the, the, the fact of being able to represent the power, the sovereign power, which has radical title, not as the return of nature to which we would bow, but as something akin to the Leviathan, that is, to which we recognize when, when we talk about Gaia and we give it a personal name, it's no more bizarre than when we say Scotland, without any idea that Scotland is actually somewhere in, in the palace down the mile there as, as, as a globe. I mean, the queen is, you know, it's not big. Sorry, she's not a globe. So the, 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 the association, so it's an experiment into metaphors about what it is to take absolutely seriously the argument about the earth mother of law, not the mother-in-law, that is a misunderstanding, the mother of law. And so I agree entirely there's a whole range of work to be done in political science, really. But here, I, that's the political theology argument which I wanted to bring in, which is we are not under, we are not summoned by nature because no one will change their ways of life or will be converted, as Nick said, just because nature demands it. But now to share power with something which has sovereignty, radical title, and which is responsive and tickling, that's maybe a different matter. I think we'll have to, Thank I you think we'll have to conclude there. Um, the drinks await. <laughs> uh, but uh, it is my happy honor uh, to be able to say just a few words of appreciation for your lectures. In the six lectures of the series Facing Gaia, Professor Latour, you have informed, stimulated, and likely even provoked us variously, reflecting an impressively wide acquaintance with scholarly work in a number of fields, a clear focus, and a passionate concern to alert and even to galvanize us toward action. 
you have pointedly dismantled simplistic and romantic notions of a capital N nature and an equally simplistic notions of a capital S science, cogently contending that both comprise complex and even conflicting dynamics. In particular, against notions of nature, capital N, as supernal, ordered, timeless, and maternal, or as all-powerful and overwhelmingly sublime, you have emphasized instead an earth that is comprised of various forces and agencies, an earth that both nourishes and is itself shaped by the various species on it, and is even fragile and susceptible to sudden and momentous changes. Early in this lecture series, you also contrasted useless versions of religion that seem unable to engage the world here below meaningfully, and for which God is little more than a cosmic designer or lawgiver. And you urged instead a religiousness that is able to perceive and act in the light of the divine investment in this world that is expressed in the biblical representation of God as both creator and incarnate redeemer. I was struck also by your emphasis that the combined effects of scientific investigation actually underscores the singularity of Earth, not simply as one planet among others, at least as far as the human race is concerned, but in all practical terms, that is in terms of human existence, our sole habitation, unique in its fecundity, but also finite and not to be taken for granted. Though perhaps less explicitly emphasized in your lectures, a clear corollary that emerged is the uniqueness of the human species. As the gathering data of environmental sciences show, we are in fact uniquely, disproportionately able to affect the earth for good or for ill and at the cost of other species. And if we do not take care, perhaps even at the cost of our own continued existence. But that also means that we should recognize a unique responsibility toward the earth. As a biblical scholar, I have to say I note that both of these emphases resonate with biblical texts. And although in some forms of modernity, both ideas have for some time been unfashionable, I find it interesting that they seem to come to us with new and powerful cogency in the light of the scientific work that you have mentioned. The biblical image of the human species, the Adama, the earth man, or the earth creature, given the responsibility to tend the earth and keep it, has often seemed quaint, but today may not be so wide of the mark after all. But in addition to leading us in a major rethinking of notions of nature, religion, and science, you have summoned us to political action, even urging us to think of ourselves as at war and likening the stakes to the fearful prospect of total nuclear destruction that loomed over previous decades. Sometimes striking a tone more evangelical than discursive, you have underscored the urgency and the immensity of the actions needed, calling for commitment, decision, and also for wisdom in our actions. While the consistently high attendance levels across the six lectures, the animation evident in the questions and discussion, and the transgenerational makeup of the audience combined to testify to the interest in your topic and to your success in leading us, even prodding us, to engage this topic thoughtfully and with moral seriousness. I want to invite the audience now to join me in a final expression of our appreciation for your lectures.
This production is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh.